This morning, I have mixed emotions. We had our fourth grandchild born last night in Indianapolis. Rhonda's son, Nathan, and his wife, Sarah, gave birth to little Lucy. Thank you. And I will be heading to Indianapolis right after the third uh, service. We are excited about that. But then on the other hand, there's this unbelievable nightmare of an ordeal that the Frozy family are going through. And in light of that, I want to dedicate this message this morning to Greg and Beth Frozy and their children. Because today I'm going to be talking about loving God. And if there's any family of Wheaton Bible Church that has embodied a loving God, it's been Greg and Beth Frozy. Their family, the last 19 years, they have led, spearheaded uh, this mission trip, our largest GO team. Uh, every summer that goes to Canada, to the First Nations, um, ministry on this island in Canada. Every year they see people come to Christ. Uh, this past year they had the opportunity to lead a, a prisoner in prison. Uh, to Christ. When I talked to Greg Friday night on the phone, I was Im so impressed with Greg's faith, his tenacity. As you probably heard, um, even the media that is uh, all over this story has been talking about Greg and Beth as a couple of faith. They embody loving God. I want to dedicate this this morning to them. Wheaton Bible Church is an 86-year-old ministry. Uh, which is pretty significant if you think about the fact that means in 14 years we're going to be celebrating our 100th anniversary. Our history as a church has been rich, it's been uh, diverse, it's been a testimony, a story of God's incredible grace time and time uh, again. We have been amazed at what God has done. About 10 years ago, if I can fast forward through our history, our staff and our elders began to meet uh, to reassess our mission, vision, and values in light of our upcoming relocation to this campus. We knew that things were going to be different. We knew a couple things actually going in. We knew, for example, that our uh, doctrine, our theology, our beliefs were non-negotiable. They were off the table. They wouldn't change. But we knew once we opened our doors here on North Avenue, we would become a much more diverse church. There would be many more challenges and many more opportunities. So it was incumbent upon us, and this is something I felt, we all felt uh, at that time, that we were very clear on a compelling mission that was behind everything we were doing. Otherwise, the relocation could, in fact, become counterproductive. So about a year into that process, this would be about nine years ago, as we were talking and talking, searching the scriptures, praying and praying, visiting with people here in the church, people outside the church, uh, God intervened, God stepped in, and God met us in a wonderful way and gave us this simple, this clear, this compelling seven-word mission. And you've seen it all around the church. Here it is. Love God, grow together, uh, reach the world. And that statement is based on Matthew 22, the great commandment, Matthew 28, the great commission, 
and we happen to believe it describes what a healthy church, what a healthy ministry looks like, what it should attend to. Now, why does this statement matter? Why is it such a big deal for us? Because it gets at why we exist as a church. It gets at how we organize our ministries, what our priorities are, how we evaluate our results. And for the last seven to eight years, this mission has been so um, potent for us, so positive for us, that it has become central to who we are as a church. So for the next three weeks, we want to take the three parts and we want to talk about them. We want to talk about each of the parts. We want to talk about what they mean for us as a church, but I want to primarily zero in on what they mean for us individually as Christ followers because we want this mission to be your mission. My dream, my deepest desire for each and every one of us here at WBC is that we would live vertically, we would love radically, and we would lift up Christ boldly. Love God, grow together, and reach the world. And this mission is nothing if we don't personalize it. That's the nature of the church, the body of believers. So today we're going to begin at the beginning. We're going to talk about loving God. We're going to talk about what it means to live vertically instead of in contrast to living horizontally. And I want you to grab your Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians chapter 3, it's page 1158 in the Bible's in front of you. And what I want to do is look at this prayer. This is a prayer of the Apostle Paul, his second prayer in the book of Ephesians, and then talk about what it means for us as followers of Christ. So Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I kneel. In light of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ that he's been unpacking in the first two chapters, for that reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now notice the emphasis on what's going on inside of us, inner being and heart. Christianity flows from the inside to the outside, not from the outside to the inside. But our walk with Christ, once we know Christ, is something that captures our hearts and our inner being. Paul's expressing that in this prayer. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In other words, that you would be spiritually mature. And now he moves from prayer to praise to doxology. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Wonderful, wonderful prayer. Now what I want you to do is let's go back to the beginning, and I want you to note the five words in verse 14, I kneel before the Father. Kneel before the Father. 
this humility before our sovereign God, expressing the word kneeling, this humility before God, and this confidence in the compassion of God, expressed in Paul's descriptor, Father, these two coupled together become two guardrails that help you get way down the road in prayer. So I want to take a minute and talk about them. When you see yourself as undeserving before God, when you see God as king, not yourself as king, when with Jesus on the cross you can say, not my will, but thy will be done, it's your agenda, God, whatever, not my agenda, then you will be humble. And that matters because you won't really pray consistently over time if you're not humble. You won't see a need. If you don't see yourself as the Bible sees you as desperate and needy before God, you're just not going to pray. It's one of the guardrails. On the other hand, you can also be totally open before God as a child of God. You can pour your heart out to God. You can come to God exactly as you are. Good times, bad times. Good days, bad days. Because God the Father completely accepts you in Jesus Christ and he has adopted you into his family. He's your father. And you won't really pray. This is the other guardrail. If you're racked with guilt and you feel like you're unacceptable to God and you have to stay away from God or you feel like you can't find the right words. No, he's your father. He completely, totally accepts you. Now back up a verse to verse 13. I want you to notice that these believers in Ephesus were discouraged. Why were they discouraged? They were discouraged because Paul tells us in the first verse of chapter 3 that he was in prison. He was in prison for his faith in Christ. And so these believers in Ephesus felt vulnerable. They were fearful. Are we going to be next? But Paul didn't feel that way, not even in prison. He was unwavering in prayer in good times and bad times, because he was humble before God's majesty and confident in God's love. Two guardrails. Now maybe you were raised in a home where there was a real emphasis and an inordinate emphasis on performance, on success. And as a result, as you've grown up over the years, you've, you've always felt inadequate, like uh, this close to feeling like a failure. Or maybe conversely, you were raised in a different type of home where one or two of your parents failed you. That was the kind of home I was raised in. They, they checked out. Maybe it was abuse, maybe they abandoned you, maybe it was a, a 50 other things. And as a result, growing up in that kind of home, you, you've always felt untrusting, a, a kind of underlying anger or bitterness. In these five words, I kneel before the Father, Paul is teaching that the only parental love that you can't lose, that is perfect and will never fail you, is God's love who is sovereign over you, 
and who completely accepts you through the saving work of Jesus Christ, through the table. That's the point of the table. Now, if you get uh, this humility that's behind the word kneeling here, and if you get the acceptance behind Paul's uh, descriptor of God as the Father, then you will be a person who will pray and pray and pray. You are humble before God. You know you are totally accepted by God. These are two guardrails. Now let's go on. In the next four verses, we come to the balance of the body of this prayer, verses 16, 17, and 18. And there's a lot going on. There's uh, three main themes of the, the love and the grace of the Father, the, the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and the beauty of the love of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice verses 16 and 17, because what's interesting here is each of the three members of the Trinity are, are mentioned. Uh, the glorious riches of the Father's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit within the child of God, within his people, and the real-time presence of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Your heart is Christ's home. Made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the plan, the grace of our loving Father. So what Paul is doing in the main in this prayer is praying that the power of the gospel, the wonder of God's glory and grace expressed in all three persons of the triune God uh, would impact each and every part of our lives 24-7. That's why I, I love this prayer. There is just so much here. But the emphasis in this prayer is on Jesus and his love. Let me show you that. Three times in the last three verses, 17, 18, and 19, Paul points to Jesus and his love. So in verse 17, Paul prays that what? We would be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. He's talking about Christ's love. That's the context. In other words, he's praying that we as, as followers of Christ would grasp the foundational central nature of what Christ has done for us. That Jesus and his love for us would be, what, uh, would be to us what roots are to a tree. Would be to us what a foundation is to, to a building. Life-giving and stabilizing. You're rooted and established. That you would understand the foundational central nature of Christ's love. Then in the next verse, verse 18, Paul prays that we would grasp the extent and the magnitude of Christ's love. That we would see it, notice the language is so wide, it encompasses all nations, all peoples. <laughs> so long that it stretches from eternity past into eternity future. So high uh, that it touches the loftiest parts of heaven, if I can say it that way. And so deep that it's available to the least deserving, the most broken among us. And that's verse 18. Then in verse 19, the final verse in this prayer, Paul prays that we would grasp uh, the divine origin, the, the, the supernatural aspect 
of this love of God in Jesus Christ. That we would understand that it's incomprehensible because it surpasses our, our knowledge. And then he concludes in this final verse by, by saying, if, if this is your experience, this is what spiritual maturity is. You want to know what it is? He tells us what it is in this prayer. In other words, people who apprehend, people who see, people who live in light of the love of God in Jesus Christ are people who are mature and maturing. Now, how in the world does this relate to our mission, love God? Well, what the apostle is saying in Ephesians 3 is that people who love God, people who stand with God in good times and bad times, uh, people who hang with God, hang in there with God and persevere in uh, excruciating difficult times are people who know the centrality, the magnitude, and the incomprehensibility of God's love in Jesus Christ vividly, dramatically revealed on the cross. That's why we celebrate the Lord's table. So in other words, Paul is teaching us something profound. He's teaching us that loving God isn't a function of what you do. It's a function of living in light of what Christ has done. It's a function, look at the cross behind me. It's a function of walking through life continually focused on the cross. Focused on Jesus. We love God to the extent we live in light of God's love for us in his son. That's this prayer. Now I want to go back through it in a way and I want to draw out Four observations relative to what this means for us. That we might get down the road as the people of God and loving God. And I want to give you really four reasons why this little prayer as it relates to our mission of loving God matters so much. And here's the first. What Paul is saying here is key to freedom. And you may already understand this, but I want you to... Uh, hang with me and, and, and listen to me because there's people around you that get tripped up in this area of freedom all the time. And maybe you can use this with them. What Paul is saying is there is no life more free than a life that is continually, continually overwhelmed by God's love in Jesus. When is a train most free? When it's on the tracks or off the tracks? When it's on the tracks. Because that's what the train was designed to do. Yet here in the West, in contrast to other traditional cultures around the world today, freedom of choice here in the States, the United States, has become almost sacred. Who are you? Or who is the church to tell me what to do? I'm going to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Now let me tell you the problem with that. The problem with this notion of freedom taken to an extreme the way it's taken in our culture today is it just flat doesn't work. As a matter of fact, it's relational fiction. 
It's relational fiction to, to think that a meaningful relationship with another person can grow and thrive unless each person sacrifices to serve the other person. Uh, you give up lesser freedoms for the greater freedom, the, the greater joy of the relationship. I mean, think of mother with a newborn or the healthiest marriages that you've been around and you've observed. Uh, those couples are always giving to each other. The, the same notion is true in our relationship with God. So when Paul here is praying about comprehending the centrality, uh, the magnitude, the grandeur of Christ's love, he's talking about you looking to the cross and seeing the injustice that Jesus bore for you. The rejection, uh, the, the, the suffering of the Lamb of God who was crushed, as Isaiah 53 says. Paul is appealing to you to see Jesus as more beautiful than anything else in life. And when you see Jesus and his love, how wide, how long, how high, how, how deep it is, then you will say no to hundreds of other things so you can continually say yes to Jesus. Now think about it. Paul is writing this from prison. But what he's telling us in, in the, this prayer, he doesn't use the word freedom, but he's telling us that the greatest freedom on earth is knowing Jesus. And so you tell me who's most free. The high school uh, student that gets drunk every weekend, sleeps around? Or the student that says, I cannot believe how Jesus Christ was humiliated for me, how he was stripped, how he was tortured, how he hung on the cross in my place for my sins. I, I can't believe that Jesus Christ did this for me, that he loves me that much. Now, I'm not any better than anybody else, but I cannot compromise my purity in light of how much he loves me. I, I just won't do that. As a matter of fact, I want to give myself to making sure my fellow students know about Jesus. I mean, you tell me who's more free, the man with a porn addiction or the man who begins every day on his knees, praying with tears, thanking God for the grace and the forgiveness and the righteousness that is his in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the key to freedom. Our culture is wrong. Freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want to. It's the ability to do what is right, to train on the tracks. Fish were designed to swim, birds to fly, the sun to shine. You and I were designed to glorify God by loving Jesus, living in light of Jesus' love for us. And this is exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 8. Look at these words. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And a little later he says, if the truth has set you free, you are free indeed. So what I want you to understand 
is when Paul is praying that we would see, we would apprehend, we would experience, we would live in light of the love of Christ. Paul is praying for your freedom. The second reason this prayer matters so much and relates so much uh, to our mission of loving God is it delivers you from superficiality. Paul is talking, this letter is addressed to Christians, to people who have come to Christ, who have known the love of Christ, who have entered into the fullness of the salvation in Christ. And yet here in this prayer, Paul does something seemingly odd. He prays that Christians would grasp Christ's love. They've already experienced it. So the question is, isn't this a contradiction? And the answer is no, this isn't original with me, but what we see here is an illustration of what we see in other places in the Bible, because what can be objectively true of a Christian isn't necessarily what's subjectively true. In other words, we can know Christ's love, but not really know Christ's love. It's why Paul emphasizes the inner being, our, our hearts. We live our Christianity from the inside out. Uh, another pastor talks about um, counseling with a 16-year-old girl in his church. She came in because she was really discouraged, depressed, struggling. And so he spent some time talking to her about how much God loves her. And he could tell he wasn't getting through. And finally, she said, you know, I know God has saved me. And I know God loves me. But what does it really matter if I can't get a single boy at school to look at me? Now think about that. I know God loves me, but I can't get a single boy to look at me. She knew Christ's love, but she didn't know Christ's love. Because there was no comfort to her. Because she believed the attention of the boys at school was more foundational to her experience of joy and significance than the love of Jesus Christ. Just think how different her life would be if she uh, knew Paul's prayer and believed it. And you say, well, hey, Rob, that's kind of part of growing up. It's part of going through those, the years. I, I, I get that. But what about the adult that says, I know God cares for me, but I, I am so fearful. The only way I can handle it is by drinking. That adult knows but doesn't know. Knows Jesus but doesn't know Jesus. I want you to hear me. I want you to think about this statement I'm about to make. It's, it actually goes back, it's been traced all the way back to Jonathan Edwards. And the statement is this. Uh, nominal Christians are Religious people find Christ useful. True Christians find Christ beautiful. 
How do you find Jesus? Is he a means to an end? Or is he the end? Are you overwhelmed as you watch a sunset by uh, the beauty of the sunset and how the sunset is just a pointer to the greater glory and, and grace of, of God in Jesus Christ? Paul says here, Christ's love is so wide, it includes all nations. So long it stretches all the way through eternity. Uh, so high it encompasses the heavens. So deep it's available to anyone. When you really, really know this, when you, when you live your life looking at the cross, it delivers you from superficiality. And frankly, my experience is there's way too much of it in the church, way too much. A third reason this prayer matters so much, it re relates to what we're talking about relative to loving God is that it rescues us, it rescues you from powerlessness. Powerlessness in life. Now, I haven't talked about it yet, but there's this marvelous progression in this prayer. It, it begins with the riches of the Father, moves to the power of the Spirit, the, to the love of, of the Son. And we need to pay attention to the progression and the emphasis here because in other words, what Paul is telling us is the reason we experience so little of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is we know so little of the depths of Christ's love. God has given us the Spirit that we might know the Son. Now, yes, the Holy Spirit here is necessary to know Christ's love. But if you see no evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, I want to suggest to you it's because uh, there's no focus in your life on the love of God in Jesus Christ. You don't see the width, the length, the height, the breadth. Paul is praying that these fearful people in Ephesus would see Jesus as more beautiful than anything else in life. And what we do, experts tell us what we do is always, always a function of what we love. You look at what you do and behind it is what you love. And what we love the most shapes us the most. So if you love to go out for dinner, guess what? You're going to go out for dinner. If it's antique cars, then you're going to have antique cars. If it's the bears, you're going to watch the bears. Cubs, socks, on and on. Paul is teaching us here that God gives you the Holy Spirit to give you more of Jesus. That this indwelling uh, presence of the Spirit points you to Jesus, opens up Jesus, that you will live facing the cross. You will live keeping Jesus central. And, and, and Paul is praying that you will experience Christ's love by the power of the Spirit in you, that, that this love that motivates you will be um, drawn from the power of the Spirit present, resident within you. 
I love these words um, from a preacher about 100 years ago. He said, the secret of holiness is heart occupation with Christ. As we gaze at Jesus, we become like Jesus. And so then he asked, do you want to become like Christ? Let all the loveliness of the risen Lord so fill the vision of your soul that all else is shut out. Then the things of the flesh, your worries, your, your battles will diminish and the things of the spirit will become supreme in your life. So let me conclude. Fourth reason this matters, fourth reason this uh, relates to this uh, first leg of our, our mission statement is because it impacts, it changes every single relationship in life. If we get what Paul is praying, if that becomes reality in our lives, it changes everything. Uh, let, me, let me show you, let me illustrate this from um, the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Actually, verses uh, 2 and 3. Paul has just prayed, and then he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. But what we have in verses 2 and 3 are a couple of the most potent verses on marriage in the New Testament. Two of the most potent verses on, verses on relationships in the New Testament. And uh, what Paul is saying here is that when your heart is filled with the width of Christ's love, this is what your relationships will look like. You'll be completely humble. You'll be gentle. You'll be patient. You'll be bearing with one another in love. You'll make every effort to preserve the unity, the spiritual unity, the Holy Spirit unity in the bond of peace. Go down to verse 29. When you understand this love, this is what the words are going to be like that come out of your mouth. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit or better, I like better, may give grace to those who hear. As you have received grace, you give grace. Every single word that comes out of your mouth. Then in chapter 5 and chapter 6, what does Paul do? He describes what people who know Christ's love, really know Christ's love, look like in their marriages as parents, children, responding to their parents in the marketplace, in the, in the workplace. And then in chapter 6, if you really know Christ's love, this is what you look like in your battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's the armor of God. So the whole point of the last three chapters of Ephesians is that when you see the wonder, when you see the beauty of Jesus Christ and behold him in your heart as more beautiful than anything else in life, and you let that wash over you day in and day out, then here's how you'll live. And it's described in chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. And Paul sets all this up in his prayer. But there's one more thing I want you to see, and then, I, and then I'm done. Go back to the last verse of chapter 3. He says, to him be glory in the church. 
In other words, what Paul is saying is, if you really, the implication here is if you really understand God's love for you in Jesus Christ, if you really are a person that loves Jesus, this is how he's praying, then you'll be a person that loves the church. You'll honor it. One of the main ways God speaks to us, one of the main ways God reveals himself uh, to us, one of the main ways God changes us is through corporate worship right here, right now, and the body of Christ throughout the week. Uh, But today, we have more commitment to our teams than we do to the church. And if we don't ignore the church, we diss the church. And and we have this crazy thing going on in our culture where we've separated uh, Jesus and our relationship with Jesus from the church. And what Paul is saying, I would suggest to you what Paul is saying is that's impossible. And then you go to chapter 5 and verse 25, he tells us Christ loved the church so much he gave himself up for it. To love God is to love the church. To really love God is to really, really love the church. I mean, think about it. Who was more beautiful than Jesus? What is more beautiful to you than Jesus? Who is more loving than Jesus? Who is more loving to you? What is more loving than Jesus? May God give us the grace to see the wonder of what Christ has done for us and live it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we praise you for all you have given us in your Son. We ask that you would give us the grace to hear, to really hear. And we thank you and we worship you and we adore you and we pray in the majestic and beautiful matchless name of Jesus. Amen.